Chapter 12, Part 1 of A Traveler from Altruria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by T. A. Niles. A Traveler from Altruria by William Dean Howells. Chapter 12, Part 1. And so, the Altrurian continued, when the labor of the community was emancipated from the bondage of the false to the free service of the true, it was also, by an inevitable implication, dedicated to beauty and rescued from the old slavery to the ugly, the stupid, and the trivial. The thing that was honest and useful became, by the operation of a natural law, a beautiful thing. Once we had not time enough to make things beautiful, we were so overworked in making false and hideous things to sell, but now we had all the time there was, and a glad emulation arose among the trades and occupations to the end that everything done should be done finely as well as done honestly. The artist, the man of genius, who worked from the love of his work, became the normal man, and in the measure of his ability and of his calling, each wrought in the spirit of the artist, we got back the pleasure of doing a thing beautifully, which was God's primal blessing upon all his working children but which we had lost in the horrible days of our need and greed. There is not a working man within the sound of my voice but has known this divine delight, and would gladly know it always if he only had the time. Well, now we had the time. The evolution had given us the time, and in all Altruria there was not a furrow driven or a swath moaned, not a hammer struck on house or on ship, not a stitch sewn or a stone laid, not a line written or a sheet printed, not a temple raised or an engine built, but it was done with an eye to beauty as well as to use. As soon as we were freed from the necessity of preying upon one another, we found that there was no hurry. The good work would wait to be well done, and one of the earliest effects of the evolution was the disuse of the swift trains which had traversed the continent night and day, that one man might overreach another, or make haste to undersell his rival, or seize some advantage of him, or plot some profit to his loss. Nine-tenths of the railroads, which in the old times had ruinously competed, and then, in the hands of the accumulation, had been united to impoverish and oppress the people, fell into disuse. The Commonwealth operated the few lines that were necessary for the collection of materials and the distribution of manufactures, and for pleasure travel and the affairs of state. But the roads that had been built to invest capital, or parallel other roads, or make-work, as it was called, 
or to develop resources or boom localities were suffered to fall into ruin. The rails were stripped from the landscape which they had bound as with shackles, and the roadbeds became highways for the use of kindly neighborhoods, or nature recovered them wholly and hid the memory of their former abuse in grass and flowers and wild vines. The ugly towns that they had forced into being, as Frankenstein was fashioned, from the materials of the charnel, and that had no life in or from the good of the community, soon tumbled into decay. The administration used parts of them in the construction of the villages in which the Altrurians now mostly live, but generally these towns were built of materials so fraudulent, in form so vile, that it was judged best to burn them. In this way their sites were at once purified and obliterated. We had, of course, a great many large cities under the old egoistic conditions, which increased and fattened upon the country, and fed their cancerous life with fresh infusions of its blood. We had several cities of half a million, and one of more than a million. We had a score of them with a population of a hundred thousand or more. We were very proud of them and vaunted them as a proof of our unparalleled prosperity, though really they never were anything but congeries of millionaires and the wretched creatures who served them and supplied them. Of course, there was everywhere the appearance of enterprise and activity, but it meant final loss for the great mass of the businessmen, large and small, and final gain for the millionaires. These and their parasites dwelt together, the rich starving the poor, and the poor plundering and misgoverning the rich. And it was the intolerable suffering in the cities that chiefly hastened the fall of the old accumulation and the rise of the commonwealth. Almost from the moment of the evolution, the competitive and monopolistic centers of population began to decline. In the clear light of the new order, it was seen that they were not fit dwelling places for men, either in the complicated and luxurious palaces where the rich fenced themselves from their kind, or in the vast tenements towering height upon height, ten and twelve stories up, where the swarming poor festered in vice and sickness and famine. If I were to tell you of the fashion of those cities of our egoistic epoch, how the construction was one error from the first, and every correction of an error bred a new defect, I should make you laugh. I should make you weep. We let them fall to ruin as quickly as they would, and their sights are still so pestilential after the lapse of centuries that travelers are publicly guarded against them. Ravening beasts and poisonous reptiles lurk in those abodes of the riches and the poverty that are no longer known to our life. A part of one of the less malarial of the old cities, however, is maintained by the commonwealth in the form of its prosperity, and is studied by antiquarians for the instruction, and by moralists for the admonition it affords. 
A section of a street is exposed, and you see the foundations of the houses. You see the filthy drains that belched into the common sewers, trapped and retrapped to keep the poison gases down. You see the sewers that rolled their loathsome tides under the streets, amid a tangle of gas pipes, steam pipes, water pipes, telegraph wires, electric lighting wires, electric motor wires, and grip cables, all without a plan, but makeshifts, expedients, devices to repair and evade the fundamental mistake of having any such cities at all. There are now no cities in Altruria, in your meaning, but there are capitals, one for each of the regions of our country and one for the whole commonwealth. These capitals are for the transaction of public affairs, in which every citizen of Altruria is schooled, and they are the residences of the administrative officials, who are alternated every year from the highest to the lowest. A public employment with us is of no greater honor or profit than any other, for with our absolute economic equality there can be no ambition, and there is no opportunity for one citizen to outshine another. But as the capitals are the centers of all the arts which we consider the chief of our public affairs, they are oftenest frequented by poets, actors, painters, sculptors, musicians, and architects. We regard all artists, who are, in a sort, creators, as the human type which is likest the divine, and we try to conform our whole industrial life to the artistic temperament. Even in the labors of the field and shop, which are obligatory upon all, we study the inspiration of this temperament, and in the voluntary pursuits we allow it full control. Each, in these, follows his fancy as to what he shall do, and when he shall do it, or whether he shall do anything at all. In the capitals are the universities, theaters, galleries, museums, cathedrals, laboratories and conservatories and the appliances of every art and science as well as the administration buildings and beauty as well as use is studied in every edifice our capitals are as clean and quiet and healthful as the country and these advantages are secured simply by the elimination of the horse an animal which we should be as much surprised to find in the streets of a town as the plesiosaurus or the pterodactyl all transportation in the capitals whether for pleasure or business is by electricity and swift electrical expresses connect the capital of each region with the villages which radiate from it to the cardinal points these expresses run at the rate of a hundred and fifty miles an hour, and they enable the artist, the scientist, the literary man of the remotest hamlet to visit the capital, when he is not actually resident there in some public use, every day after the hours of the obligatory industries. Or, if he likes, 
he may remain there a whole week or fortnight, giving six hours a day instead of three to the obligatories, until the time is made up. In case of very evident merit, or for the purpose of allowing him to complete some work requiring continuous application, a vote of the local agents may release him from the obligatories indefinitely. Generally, however, our artists prefer not to ask this, but avail themselves of the stated means we have of allowing them to work at the obligatories, and get the needed exercise and variety of occupation in the immediate vicinity of the capital. We do not think it well to connect the hamlets on the different lines of radiation from the capital, except by the good country roads which traverse each region in every direction. The villages are mainly inhabited by those who prefer a rural life. They are farming villages, but in Altruria it can hardly be said that one man is more a farmer than another. We do not like to distinguish men by their callings. We do not speak of the poet this or the shoemaker that, for the poet may very likely be a shoemaker in the obligatories, and the shoemaker a poet in the voluntaries. If it can be said that one occupation is honored above another with us, it is that which we all share, and that is the cultivation of the earth. We believe that this, when not followed slavishly or for gain, brings man into the closest relations to the deity through a grateful sense of the divine bounty, and that it not only awakens a natural piety in him, but that it endears to the worker that piece of soil which he tills, and so strengthens his love of home. The home is the very heart of the Altrurian system, and we do not think it well that people should be away from their homes very long or very often. In the competitive and monopolistic times, men spend half their days in racing back and forth across our continent. Families were scattered by the chase for fortune, and there was a perpetual paying and repaying of visits. One half the income of those railroads, which we let fall into disuse, came from the ceaseless unrest. Now a man is born and lives and dies among his own kindred, and the sweet sense of neighborhood, of brotherhood, which blessed the golden age of the first Christian republic, is ours again. Every year, the people of each region meet one another on Evolution Day in the Regionic Capital. Once in four years they all visit the National Capital. There is no danger of decay of patriotism among us. Our country is our mother, and we love her as it is impossible to love the stepmother that a competitive or monopolistic nation must be to its citizens. I can only touch upon this feature and that of our system, as I chance to think of it. If any of you are curious about others, I shall be glad to answer questions as well as I can. We have, of course, the Altrurian proceeded, after a little indefinite pause, to let any speak who liked. 
no money in your sense, as the whole people control affairs. No man works for another, and no man pays another. Every one does his share of labor, and receives his share of food, clothing, and shelter, which is neither more nor less than another's. If you can imagine the justice and impartiality of a well-ordered family, you can conceive of the social and economic life of Altruria. We are, properly speaking, a family rather than a nation like yours. Of course, we are somewhat favored by our insular or continental position, but I do not know that we are more so than you are. Certainly, however, we are self-sufficing in a degree unknown to most European countries, and we have within our borders the materials of every comfort and the resources of every need. We have no commerce with the egoistic world, as we call that outside, and I believe that I am the first Altrurian to visit foreign countries, avowedly in my national character, though we have always had emissaries living abroad incognito. I hope that I may say without offense that they find it a sorrowful exile and that the reports of the egoistic world, with its wars, its bankruptcies, its civic commotions, and its social unhappiness, do not make us discontented with our own condition. Before the evolution, we had completed the round of your inventions and discoveries, impelled by the force that drives you on, and we have since disused most of them as idle and unfit. But we profit now and then by the advances you make in science, for we are passionately devoted to the study of the natural laws, open or occult, under which all men have their being. Occasionally an emissary returns with a sum of money and explains to the students of the National University the processes by which it is lost and won, and at a certain time there was a movement for its introduction among us, not for its use as you know it, but for a species of counters in games of chance. It was considered, however, to contain an element of danger, and the scheme was discouraged. Nothing amuses and puzzles our people more than the accounts our emissaries give of the changes of fashion in the outside world and of the ruin of soul and body which the love of dress often works. Our own dress, for men and for women, is studied in one ideal of use and beauty from the antique. Caprice and vagary in it would be thought an effect of vulgar vanity. Nothing is worn that is not simple and honest in texture. We do not know whether a thing is cheap or dear, except as it is easy or hard to come by, and that which is hard to come by is forbidden as wasteful and foolish. The community builds the dwellings of the community, and these too are of a classic simplicity, though always beautiful and fit in form. 
the splendors of the arts are lavished upon the public edifices which we all enjoy in common isn't this the greatest rehash of utopia new atlantis and city of the sun that you've ever imagined the professor whispered across me to the banker the man is a fraud and a very bungling fraud at that well you must expose him when he gets through the banker whispered back but the professor could not wait he got upon his feet and called out may i ask the gentleman from altruria a question certainly the altrurian blandly assented make it short reuben camp's voice broke in impatiently we didn't come here to listen to your questions the professor contemptuously ignored him i suppose you occasionally receive emissaries from as well as send them to the world outside yes now and then castaways land on our coasts and ships out of their reckonings put in at our ports for water or provision and how are they pleased with your system why i cannot better answer than by saying that they mostly refuse to leave us ah just as bacon reports cried the professor you mean in the new atlantis returned the altrurian yes it is astonishing how well bacon in that book and sir thomas more in his utopia have divined certain phases of our civilization and polity <laughs> i think he rather has you professor the banker whispered with a laugh but all those inspired visionaries the altrurian continued while the professor sat grimly silent watching for another chance who have borne testimony of us in their dreams conceived of states perfect without the discipline of a previous competitive condition what i thought however might specially interest you americans in altruria is the fact that our economy was evolved from one so like that in which you actually have your being i had even hoped you might feel that in all these points of resemblance america prophesies another altruria i know that to some of you all that i have told you of my country will seem a baseless fabric with no more foundation in fact than moore's fairy tale of another land where men dealt kindly and justly by one another and dwelt a whole nation in the unity and equality of a family but why should not a part of that fable have come true in our polity as another part of it has come true in yours when sir thomas more wrote that book he noted with abhorrence the monstrous injustice of the fact that men were hanged for small thefts in england and in the preliminary conversation between its characters he denounced the killing of men for any sort of thefts now you no longer put men to death for theft you look back upon that cruel code of your mother england with an abhorrence as great as his own we for our part 
who have realized the utopian dream of brotherly equality, look back with the same abhorrence upon a state where some were rich and some poor, some taught and some untaught, some high and some low, and the hardest toil often failed to supply a sufficiency of the food which luxury wasted in its riots. That state seemed as atrocious to us as the state which hanged a man for stealing a loaf of bread seems to you. But we do not regret the experience of competition and monopoly. They taught us some things in the operation of the industries. The labor-saving inventions which the accumulation perverted to money-making we have restored to the use intended by their inventors and the creator of their inventors. After serving the advantage of socializing the industries which the accumulation effected for its own purposes, we continued the work in large mills and shops in the interest of the workers, whom we wished to guard against the evil effects of solitude. But our mills and shops are beautiful as well as useful. They look like temples, and they are temples, dedicated to that sympathy between the divine and human which expresses itself in honest and exquisite workmanship. They arise amid leafy boscages beside the streams, which form their only power, for we have disused steam altogether, with all the offenses to the eye and air which its use brought into the world. Our life is so simple, and our needs are so few that the handwork of the primitive toilers could easily supply our wants, but machinery works so much more thoroughly and beautifully that we have in great measure retained it. Only the machines that were once the workmen's enemies and masters are now their friends and servants, and if any man chooses to work alone with his own hands the state will buy what he makes at the same price that it sells the weirs made collectively this secures every right of individuality the farm work as well as the mill work and the shop work is done by companies of workers and there is nothing of that loneliness in our woods and fields which I understand is the cause of so much insanity among you. It is not good for man to be alone, was the first thought of his creator when he considered him, and we act upon this truth in everything. The privacy of the family is sacredly guarded in essentials, but the social instinct is so highly developed with us that we like to eat together in large refectories, and we meet constantly to argue and dispute on questions of aesthetics and metaphysics. We do not, perhaps, read so many books as you do, for most of our reading, when not for special research but for culture and entertainment, is done by public readers to large groups of listeners. We have no social meetings which are not free to all and we encourage joking and the friendly give-and-take of witty encounters. A little hint from Sparta, suggested the professor. The banker leaned over to whisper to me, 
from what I've seen of your friend when offered a piece of American humor, I should fancy the Altrurian article was altogether different. Upon the whole, I would rather not be present at one of their witty encounters, if I were obliged to stay it out. The Altrurian had paused to drink a glass of water, and now he went on. But we try in everything that does not inconvenience or injure others to let everyone live the life he likes best. If a man prefers to dwell apart and have his meals in private for himself alone or for his family, it is freely permitted. Only he must not expect to be served as in public, where service is one of the voluntaries. Private service is not permitted. Those wishing to live alone must wait upon themselves, cook their own food, and care for their own tables. Very few, however, wish to withdraw from the public life, for most of the discussions and debates take place at our midday meal, which falls at the end of the obligatory labors, and is prolonged indefinitely or as long as people like to chat and joke or listen to the reading of some pleasant book. In Altruria, there is no hurry, for no one wishes to outstrip another or in any wise surpass him. We are all assured of enough and are forbidden any and every sort of superfluity. If anyone, after the obligatories, wishes to be entirely idle, he may be so, but I cannot now think of a single person without some voluntary occupation. Doubtless there are such persons, but I do not know them. It used to be said in the old times that it was human nature to shirk and malinger and loaf, but we have found that it is no such thing. We have found that it is human nature to work cheerfully, willingly, eagerly, at the tasks which all share for the supply of the common necessities. In like manner, we have found out that it is not human nature to hoard and grudge, but that when the fear and even the imagination of want is taken away, it is human nature to give and to help generously. We used to say, a man will lie or a man will cheat in his own interest. That is human nature. But that is no longer human nature with us. Perhaps because no man has any interest to serve, he has only the interests of others to serve, while others serve his. It is in no wise possible for the individual to separate his good from the common good. He is prosperous and happy only as all the rest are so, and therefore it is not human nature with us for anyone to lie in wait to betray another or seize an advantage. That would be ungentlemanly, and in Altruria every man is a gentleman and every woman a lady. If you will excuse me here for being so frank, I would like to say something by way of illustration which may be offensive if you take it personally. 
He looked at our little group as if he were addressing himself more especially to us, and the banker called out jollily, Go on, I guess we can stand it. And, Go ahead, came from all sides, from all kinds of listeners. It is merely this, that as we look back at the old competitive conditions, we do not see how any man could be a gentleman in them, since a gentleman must think first of others, and these conditions compelled every man to think first of himself. There was a silence broken by some conscious and hearty laughter, while we each swallowed this pill as we could. What are competitive conditions? Mrs. Makeley demanded of me. Well, ours are competitive conditions, I said. Very well, then, she returned. I don't think Mr. Homos is much of a gentleman to say such a thing to an American audience. Or, wait a moment, ask him if the same rule applies to women. I rose, strengthened by the resentment I felt, and said, do I understand that in your former competitive conditions it was also impossible for a woman to be a lady? The professor gave me an applausive nod as I sat down. I envy you the chance of that little dig, he whispered. The Altruian was thoughtful a moment, and then he answered, No, I should not say it was. From what we know historically of those conditions in our country, it appears that the great mass of women were not directly affected by them. They constituted an altruistic dominion of the egoistic empire, and, except as they were tainted by social or worldly ambitions, it was possible for every woman to be a lady, even in competitive conditions. Her instincts were unselfish, and her first thoughts were nearly always of others. Mrs. Makeley jumped to her feet and clapped violently with her fan on the palm of her left hand. Three cheers for Mr. Homos, she shrieked, and all the women took up the cry, supported by all the natives and the construction gang. I fancied these fellows gave their support largely in a spirit of burlesque, but they gave it robustly, and from that time on Mrs. Makeley led the applause, and they roared in after her. End of chapter 12, part 1